Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of the C19 Podcast. I'm Anna Mae Duane. I'm a member of C19 and an associate professor of English at the University of Connecticut. In this episode, we'll be talking about a collaborative project that asks us to think about how we can and cannot bring the 19th century to bear on 21st century questions about social justice, and in particular to the growing response to the phenomenon largely referred to as modern slavery, a term that is in itself controversial. I edited a collection called Child Slavery Before and After Emancipation, an Argument for Child-Centered Slavery Studies, which was published by Cambridge University Press just this year. And in this project, I was fortunate enough to create a conversation between an interdisciplinary group of scholars that came together to think about what constitutes a usable past when thinking about modern forms of freedom, and more specifically, how focusing on children can help us to rethink questions of property, of memory, and of freedom itself. So in the studio today, I have three scholars who contributed to this project. Um, first, I have Karen Sanchez-Epler, L. Stanton Williams, 1941 Professor of American Studies and English, and currently Chair of English uh, at, her, at Amherst. She is a past president of C-19, and perhaps one of the leading voices on the questions that childhood raises for us as scholars, as archivists, and as citizens. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you so much, Anna Mae. I also have in the studio with me Sarah Winter, uh, a colleague with me here at the University of Connecticut. Uh, she is Professor of English and Comparative Literature at the University of Connecticut and Director of the Research Program on Humanitarianism at the Yunkan Human Rights Institute. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks very much, Anna May. Um, we also have uh, Mickey Maclier, who comes to us from the History Department here at the University of Connecticut where she is the director of the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Program and Associate Professor of History. Um, she specializes in the histories of women, gender, race, and sexuality in the United States from the Civil War to the present. Erica, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, I wanted to um, jump right into sort of the conversation that we had in print uh, a couple of years ago, and then now um, I want to revisit, um, now that we've sort of got our chapters out into the world. So I'll say sort of how the idea for the book came to me. I was attending a conference uh, hosted by the GLC at Yale University um, that put scholars of 19th century slavery in conversations with modern anti-trafficking and, and modern anti-slavery activists. And it was a revelation to me on, on many levels. But um, one thing that I noticed is that almost every speaker um, talked about how children, both in historical slavery, sort of 
pre-emancipation slavery and post-emancipation slavery were, if not the majority, a plurality of, of the people who were enslaved or subject to enslavement. But when it came time to do analysis of possible solutions, um, either in, in sort of the modern context or sort of thinking through what worked and what didn't in a historical context, children were just sort of dropped out of the conversation. So I wanted to know why. What changes if we make children a subject rather than the exception? I brought together some of the most brilliant scholars I knew, which are sitting in front of me, um, and I wanted to sort of come at this question from a range of disciplines and time zones uh, and preoccupations, and I asked everybody to place children at the center of a chapter that drew on their own work on slavery and freedom, however they were understanding and analyzing those questions, while also thinking about how the child might help think through connections between past and present forms of unfreedom. And so I think in doing so, um, I asked everyone, including me, to sort of step out of their comfort zone a little. If you were used to thinking about children, I asked you to think about modern slavery. If you were used to thinking about modern slavery and trafficking, I asked you to think about children. Um, so one question I wanted to start out with was, um, by asking you how, if at all, the focus on childhood and children reoriented your approach to your own work and questions of slavery and freedom within that work. A central premise of childhood studies, which is the field in which I work, is that foregrounding children asks us to ask different questions. So I wanted to start by thinking about what questions did this conversation raise for all of you, and I thought I'd start with you, Mickey, because uh, in some ways I feel like I pulled you into childhood studies a little bit. Um, you are a historian of gender and race who is concerned with, uh, among many other things, questions of memory. Um, and although your work on the mammy stereotype deals with questions of motherhood and other kinds of care work, um, I'm thinking your primary focus isn't always usually on childhood itself. Um, and your chapter in this book looks at how what came to be called the white slavery scare appropriated and reworked the memories of African-American slavery in the U.S. And I'm wondering how focusing on children, and particularly you focused on um, this one image of a child, um, pushed you to think about the white slavery scare and sort of its ramifications differently. Yes, it did. And one of the things that your request that I centered <laughs> children in, in my analysis of looking at the progressive era white slavery scare, so-called, um, or an earlier iteration of an anti-trafficking campaign that turned into essentially a sex panic in the United States um, and consistently focused on uh, immigration restriction, on imperiled young women who were threatened by non-white and immigrant men, um, and trying to understand the ways in which references to chattel slavery of the 19th century were used to both give moral heft, but also shift the race racialization of what it meant to be enslaved or potentially enslavable. Um, and so as I was thinking about that, I was not centering children, uh, either in my analysis or in sort of the questions I was, was asking, despite the fact they were all over the place. And so your generous invitation to participate in this collection and participate in this conversation really made me look at my archive differently. It was work that I had had around for a while and um, was only starting to really focus on the ways in which um, the, the claim to be an abolitionist in the early 20th century carried this sort of moral heft that was connected to those associations with chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. And that the ways in which 
anti-white slavery reformers and progressive activists were using that term uh, signaled something, I think, really important for its contemporary usage in anti-human trafficking and um, uh, anti-modern slavery activism. And I center in this a statue, um, a sculpture that was created for the 1913 Armory show by the, the sculptor Abistenia St. Leger Eberly called White Slave. And what White Slave depicts is a moment of auction, of slave auction in, the, in her contemporary moment, which was the progressive era, early 20th century. And it shows an adult male figure auctioning off a nude prepubescent child. One might say, why weren't you talking about children when you were thinking about this sculpture and what it meant, um, which I think is a really instructive for those of us who don't work in childhood studies, how often these subjects are right in front of our faces, but we're not actually analyzing them as child subjects. So thinking about that child subject and, and both my own inability to see, but why the sculptor wanted us to see, not an adult woman, but a child being auctioned, um, really highlighted for me the ways in which the racialization of who is an imperiled person of who is potentially enslaved in the early 20th century example um, as a white child, as a white woman, was tied with ideas of innocence that were best, um, uh, best symbolized or, or made visible through a child. When you're talking about sexual innocence, yes. you're offering child subjects. Um, the other thing that really struck me in the piece was the way in which children as viewers of this sculpture were understood as being threatened by the sculpture. Um, and it's something that, that uh, uh, really highlighted the ways in which boys and their sexuality and their desire was being understood as endangered by seeing a titillating image of selling a, um, selling a girl child for sex, obviously. So it was, that was a bit of a revelation to me as well. I, that was so fascinating to me, the sort of dual levels of vulnerability that in trying to protect one sort of child, you're inevitably sort of damaging the other sort of child. Um, so but all of them were white children. But all of them were white children. <laughs> right. There's that, no understanding that, um, there's no understanding except for by uh, particularly African-American activists in the progressive era who are saying, we need to understand young black women and girls as also being endangered in these spaces who instead of resisting the larger comparison to slavery are resisting the drawing out of girls and women of color from the potentially imperiled. I wanted to uh, ask Sarah next um, because I, I really found your uh, discussion of child um, child exchange and child gift giving to be really a revelation for thinking about property um, you're interested in how particular conceptions of personhood show up in depictions of the fugitive slave, the political prisoner, and legal structures, abolitionist writings, uh, and the novel. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about, right, the child is always a problem for legal structures, right? The problem, uh, the child is so often invisible and doesn't qualify for questions like hippie corpus a lot of the time. You know, to this present day, the child is sort of um, this absence in the legal discourse. So um, when I asked you if you would think about how children are functioning in this larger conversation about legal personhood, um, I'm wondering what surprised you or where it led you. In my research on Hades Corpus, I've been really struck by how 
malleable the process is as far as for whom it can be used and initiated. Um, it, it sometimes uh, is an assumption of critiques of law that personhood is an exclusive and a sort of exclusionary category in many cases. Uh, whereas in the case of the writ of habeas corpus, historically, particularly in the 18th century, it turns out that many, uh, many people who were detained could, uh, or their relatives could access uh, the writ. For example, uh, families could have writs issued to question the detention of uh, a, a daughter or a sister whose husband was not allowing her to circulate in public. They could use uh, parents, uh, a father or a mother could use, could request uh, that the writ be issued to uh, remove a child from the custody of, of another person, you know, perhaps the other parent in a, in a situation where they were separated. If you could define the writ of habeas corpus right. for those of us who are sort of know yes. what we think so it means. So the, the writ of habeas corpus is a very old, it's a medieval writ. Uh, that uh, issues when uh, someone approaches a judge and makes the case that there is a person being detained unlawfully. And that judge uh, will then issue a writ requesting directly to the jailer in the king's name, saying, please bring the body of this prisoner before me uh, with uh, the return to the writ, which is an account of the cause of detention of this person. And so the writ itself issues, it's a scrap of parchment, and it, it goes to the jailer. The jailer must then bring the body of the prisoner, the corpus, to before the judge along with the return. So all of the, this uh, enables uh, somewhat sometimes secretive detentions or detentions that can't easily be examined or questioned in front of the law. So, uh, so when I found out that children could could be uh, uh, sort of gained access to by means of the writ. Um, I also uh, became interested in what some of these early legal cases in England were of this use of the writ. One of these most famous cases was the Somerset decision of 1772 before Lord Mansfield, Chief Justice of King's Bench. Somerset was, uh, had, had escaped from his master and was recaptured and put on board a ship where he was to be sent back to the West Indies, and some of his abolitionist friends uh, were able to obtain a writ from Lord Mansfield, which allowed him to be brought before the court. And the ultimate decision of Lord Mansfield was that he could not be detained and sent out of the kingdom, and therefore he was freed. In the course of the legal arguments by Somerset's lawyers before uh, King's Bench, uh, one case was mentioned, uh, which was Shanley v. Harvey of 1762, a chancery case. And this involved a child slave who had been given to a wealthy woman by her uncles and had lived in her household. And he, uh, at, at her death, she attempted to give him a bequest to make him, to give him a com comfortable life and to make him happy, as she stated. Um, and he, the, the chancellor upheld his right to inherit um, in uh, the court and also claimed that when a slave sets foot in England, he becomes free. 
So at that point, then I started to look for other uh, cases involving children. And of course, I came across some very well-known cases where children had been given, slave children begin as gifts to other children. In the um, narrative of Mary Prince, which was from 1831, she was a West Indian slave. And uh, in uh, Linda Brander Harriet Jacobs's Incidents of a Slave, the Life of a Slave Girl from 1861. Um, so those were the, those were, that was how I got started on the question of legal personhood. Ultimately, what I discovered in looking at children is the generally, general legal disability of a child. But at the same time, in certain circumstances, such as in 1762, a child slave could end up be, being uh, given uh, a bequest of a will and being validated as somebody who could own property. So the law, seeming to be exclusionary, ends up having this, in certain cases, ability to include and thus to recognize uh, the legal rights and personhood of children who are normally under legal disability. What I really loved about your chapter is how it sort of put pressure on, on both ends of the definition, in which sort of all slaves are property, and so are all children. And so what happens when the law is sort of forced to decide who has a larger claim? If a white child, does whiteness um, preempt childhood? And so does the child's property, you know, claim to property um, become valid because... It, uh, the child was given a slave child, or in the cases you're thinking about as well, can um, can the particular um, sort of leniency given to certain kinds of childhood allow the child to sort of claim property in a way that is norm is normally not permitted for children? So that, that the two sort of points of legal disability, to use your term, can cancel each other out, or Be because certain legal rules permit personhood to be recognized by the court. In the case of chancery, it has to do with the fact that the testator's uh, intentions must be honored if they can be determined. And in the case of habeas corpus, it's simply the, the person who's detained, whether child, woman, adult, fugitive slave, uh, ha is, is entitled to a hearing um, under this, this particular procedure. And therefore, that person's access to legal personhood is enabled, even though they normally would not have that, that possibility. So the le it's the legal process that ends up being foregrounded, and then it starts to call into question, you know, what, what, is the, wh what are the restrictive natures of personhood, and what are the sort of ways that such restrictions can be turned into other purposes that are, le you know, that, that enable access to the law. Right. Um, now I want to ask Karen, who um, definitely thinks about childhood a lot. Um, and I wanted, you know, your focus um, has influenced me and many, many others to think about children as agents, as co-creators, uh, co rather than just consumers of culture. So in some ways, right, this didn't push you perhaps as far afield as some of the other contributors, uh, but your chapter did ask historians to think differently about one of the key resources for understanding 19th century slavery, the WPA narratives. And I, I, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about what these sources are uh, for folks who might not be familiar with them and why, what happens when we think about them as documents of childhood, why, how that is sort of both, um, you know, 
eliminated them from certain considerations and what happens if we sort of insist upon that um, that definition. So the Work Progress Administration was a New Deal, um, among its many um, New Deal initiatives, was to collect slave narratives. So a recognition in the 1930s that most of the people who had been born into slavery were now um, quite old and were disappearing as a historical resource, and so a collection of oral histories. And it is by far the largest um, source testimony of slave enslaved people's perspectives on slavery. But it's, of course, also taken long afterwards and collected in all sorts of ways that do raise questions about the legitimacy of of the interviews as a kind of um, even-handed source. And most of the people who did the interviewing, they were collected in the South, so these are African-Americans who stayed in the South who were mostly interviewed, and they were collected by mostly white interviewers, many of whom came from families that had historically been slave-holding families, so there is a lot of reasons for suspicion um, and difficulty about them. One of the reasons that they are also considered somewhat suspicious is because you not only have the lapse of time, but of course, if you're going from 1865 to 1930s, you're talking about people who are remembering their childhoods. Um, and that question that I think is the central question of animes, or one of the powerful questions of, of animes um, anthology, is this sense of what is the relationship between childhood and slavery. So in the habeas corpus things that Sarah was just talking about, there's a way in which a child is a paradigmatic slave, that is, a person who already is property, all children in some senses, um, have our own and controlled in ways that are very similar to slavery. So in some ways, child and slave are terms that just collapse into each other. But the 19th century is really a um, core moment for an idealization of childhood as quintessentially a space of freedom, play, imagination, joy, all of those idealized features of childhood. Um, that are generally understood as the opposite of slavery. And at certainly initially when scholars started to use the WPA narrative, one of the things that they would say about it is not very useful because all it knows about is um, the slavery of children, which is a much gentler period. It hides um, those abuses. It hides the most urgent, stringent um, aspects of slavery. So recognizing that in fact about a third of all enslaved people in the United States um, during the period where we have census data, so from the 1830s um, until the 60s, um, were under 10 years old, is to say this is not an irrelevant portion of that population. This is a really um, crucial and large segment of the, of the enslaved demographic, um, and much more so in the U.S., which, of course, 
after the um, stop of the slave trade, raised its own slaves. And therefore, um, that double function of slavery, where your value comes both from the work you do and from yourself as property, you're creating two kinds of value. Um, so children exemplify that, um, initially being valuable as an owned thing and then becoming more and more valuable as, as their labor worth increases. Um, I think one of the things that's really complicated about using the WPA narratives, and I think part of why people have a hard time using them, is that they are on the surface pretty benign. They have a they have a lot of um, slightly slightly chipper tone to them often. One of the criticisms of them is that they have this nostalgia in places yeah. and the way that that nostalgia was elicited by patronizing interviewers or it's just, it's not, a, it's not what we think we should hear about, um, about slavery. slavery. Right, or childhood. Or maybe childhood, but not maybe slavery. Maybe childhood, right. but not slavery. But if you don't think that they are, if you don't think that childhood and slavery can exist at the same time in a way, if you are going with this idealized yeah. vision of what childhood is, then it seems strange to hear those um, those accounts of playing, of being petted. Of, and mostly what I did in, in my work for your book was to try to do really close readings of WPA interviews. And, and I think my own experience with them is that I would first pick up a passage and it would feel really um, hard to know how to break into it. It would feel just really nostalgic, really simple, um, and yet the more I would look at it, the more um, it would exfoliate and show these really complex and, and challenging understandings about how the people being interviewed were themselves using childhood, were themself, themselves both insisting that they were slaves and children at the same time, that that was a salient relationship, not a paradoxical relationship, but also how occupying the place of a child um, was itself a kind of accomplishment that they wanted to claim. So um, a young slave, enslaved boy who had a job of lying on the floor in his master's bedroom to be able to um, keep the fire high all night would say about that, um, I could have slept on a trundle bed, but I chose to sleep on the floor because then I was closer to the fire, it was easier for me. So we may have all sorts of auras about sexual abuse, about, um, but really important when he's narrating it for him to say, I chose to sleep on the floor. Another instance of a child who was charged with taking care of the master's children and leaves them on a shore to go catch fish um, out of her own 
pleasure in doing that and talks with great delight about how great she is at catching fish and how much she loved doing that. And the master comes down and sees her, sees that the children are okay and laughs. And in telling that story, she gets to be the naughty child for whom an adult laughs, even though that's so clearly a situation in which the threat of sexual violence, she's taken off her clothes to go into the river, the threat of physical violence, she has been delinquent as a nursemaid, um, the ways in which she as just a very few years older um, than the children she's watching is already being treated by the system as a laborer and an adult. But when she tells it, she wants to tell that story in a way that claims childhood for herself um, inside of these nostalgic, idealizing models of what mm-hmm. childhood would be like and how adults would treat children. That was not what I was expecting when I was thinking. I was thinking I was going to look at these and find... Um, stories of exploitation and write about those. And I did find lots of those and I did write about them too. But the thing that was really um, my own piece of real learning in this project was realizing how the very parts of these narratives that seemed initially to me most, I don't know, false and useless, I guess, uh, most performative in a... um, telling the story under white supremacy way, actually it contained inside of them um, these really potent places of resistance and identity formation that were using childhood itself to do that. Um, I mean, that's what I found so moving about the work that all three of you did. Um, <clears throat> about um, if we think of, sort of Nikki's chapter as you know a really beautiful illustration of how the child, the white child, becomes this text for vulnerability and a really flattened uh, sort of aspect of complete exploitation and fear and the need of rescue, um, and the way that script sort of gets uh, attached to to slavery um, and. The, how that sort of invokes this sort of language of infantilization that I think lots of us are worried about when we think about how we're going to theorize enslaved people um, because that sort of paternalism has been so pervasive. But then Sarah and Karen's chapter show sort of how if we get rid of paternalism, we miss all these sort of moments. If not paternalism, sort of the vulnerability that paternalism wants to exploit, right? Sort of these moments of, of... of vulnerable childhood where sort of consent consent to, to sort of particular kinds of emotion or um, but, you know the, the real sort of affection there that you chart between these sort of children who are still figuring out their sort of places in sort of the legal and racial structure and the moments kind of, of, sort of real actual pleasure and delight that these um, interviewees insist on and I think by one of the things that all three of your work helped me think about in terms of why it, why we should put childhood and slavery in conversation is that um, if we neglect sort of these moments of mediated pleasure and consent and resistance, um, we're missing a, a lot of the a lot of what the embodied life of slavery 
was. Um, and so your work really sort of helped me think about that in really provocative ways. So I'm so grateful to you. Childhood was one of the hooks in the title and in the project, and the other one was um, right in the before and after formulation of the title, right before and after emancipation. Um, what does sort of thinking about uh, historical pre-emancipation slavery tell us at all about uh, forms of coerced labor and exploitation, trafficking, and modern slavery um, in the globe today? And so I wanted to sort of wrap up by thinking, by asking you sort of how that pulled you in different directions, but sort of more generally, because I think, you know, at this historical moment, working with historical documents that think about race and exploitation and um, various forms of oppression, it feels salient in a way that perhaps it didn't even five years ago. Um, so I'm just wondering, I mean, for me, um, right, in some ways, right, the child, I find such a fascinating subject to think about because the childism is such a, a useful and rich and fertile metaphor. We can't, right, <laughs> it's always, the child is almost always a metaphor for something else, uh, often around power relations. And I, I've been thinking a lot about how, particularly in our m current moment, how history is functioning as metaphor, as analogy, as causality. Um, and so when we sort of have these moments in which, um, you know, we, we think about um, things in the past that seem really familiar in problematic ways today, I'm wondering sort of, um, th there's a, a debate about the usefulness, particularly in terms of modern slavery, um, this question of, uh, it, you know, it's not the same. So trying to make that analogy is just clouding the issue. Um, and then there's a counter argument that, well, we need to sort of trace the continuities uh, between sort of the older systems of oppression and, um, you know, uh, present systems of oppression. The, the sort of debate around incarceration really sort of focuses on sort of how the 13th Amendment sort of allowed this loophole in which slavery perpetuated. So I'm just wondering sort of, in your own work, uh, in sort of the directions your work is taking now, or just sort of like in conversations you're having uh, either uh, in, with fellow faculty members or in the classroom, how, what sort of work do you see 19th century thinking doing at this moment? You mentioned incarceration, and it's certainly the case that thinking about controlling children, thinking about the criminalization of especially African-American children in, in the U.S. has a lot of re resonances uh, against um, and roots in the, the history of, of slavery, which is part of the history of race relations in, in the U.S. And I think understanding the depth of that remains um, really important that we're not that part of what's made you know, the the problem with like thinking about an abolitionist movement is, as we were saying before, is that it has this model in which it thinks that there's an end. Right. You can a abolish something and a happy ending, mm -hmm. um, you know, and and so I think one of the things depressing as it is about telling these stories is of being able to trace that long continuity 
and those roots. And for me, that's not, I guess that's not a hopeless undertaking. It's, it seems clear that you can't eradicate anything without an understanding of the places that it comes out of. And so in that sense, really important to keep saying, no, this is not an aberration of our present moment. This is something that we have been long cultivating. Models of equality and abuse that we've been long cultivating in the U.S. And I think as a feminist and a historian and a feminist historian, considering contemporary activism around human trafficking and seeking to end the exploitation, both sexual but also the non-sexual exploitation of children and adults in our contemporary moment, and understanding that as modern slavery is profoundly morally powerful, right? There are things that that does politically and in terms of activism that make an enormous amount of sense and that I understand the appeal to that. Using the term slavery. Using the term Mm -hmm. slavery and also looking to the term abolition as a way to talk about resisting those things. Um, Simultaneously, I am very concerned about the application of slavery and human trafficking carte blanche across all sex work and prostitution, for instance. It's become very common among um, a a particular uh, segment of the, the, the feminist response to these things to just reference human trafficking. And also now very common for um, people who have been um, sex workers, who have been working in prostitution, who have been coerced often into those, um, into those positions, uh, reference themselves as having been trafficked, right? So it's a language that we have and that is very common. But I also think it's highly problematic in its historical associations. And in part because to make reference to abolition is to call up, I think, not the 19th century history of abolitionism, but the early 20th century progressive era history of um, the an earlier iteration of new abolitionism yeah. that was keyed toward this white slavery panic and that even in the name white slavery suggests the comparison that was necessarily being made, but also the idea that slavery itself had already been racialized, and that to call it white slavery was to suggest a profoundly deeper horror. And the language and the rhetoric of that period was, this is worse than any black traffic. That's a direct quote from the Mm -hmm. progressive era. Um, And this consistent reference that you think chattel slavery was bad, white slavery is profoundly worse. Um, And that's a historical association that I don't think the contemporary new abolitionist movement recognizes and that I don't think they recognize the problems of agency and the um, the issues of self-determination that are being negated in those claims to being abolitionists and, and working on behalf of others. And I am um, I, I feel like the uh, the the reference itself also it continues to pull on these notions that abolition is necessarily anti-white supremacist, that one doesn't have to unpack or deal with the racial formation, the racism, and the white supremacy that's inherent to these conversations, because you've already suggested, I'm anti-slavery. Therefore, I don't have to deal with that or think about that. And we need to consistently be reminding people that historically one could be anti-slavery and still a white supremacist, and in the contemporary moment, you can be anti-slavery and still deeply entrenched in white supremacy 
and privilege in ways that, that aren't being acknowledged. Right. So in some ways, the way history gets sort of co-opted, but also washed over. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think that uh, one of the things that working on the 19th century requires in terms of understanding children and, and, and their status as slaves um, is that you have to go into the archives and you have to work very hard to find uh, some kind of testimony from children. And once you do that, you have to realize that they, that they are involved in certain kinds of conventions, that they're speaking to certain kinds of authority figures, and that you have to sort of think very, very carefully about creating a context in which this, this uh, what is being communicated can be opened up and be understood. And I think that there, you know, there's, there are archives of the present that need to have the yes. same kind of excavation and the same kind of care surrounding the status of, of uh, subjects such as child refugees who are enormously vulnerable, right. um, uh, trafficked children, uh, and, and others who are making uh, claims. Um, this is sort of a connection with human rights. Yeah. Uh, where there are claims that are being made by them, there are claims that are being made on their behalf. And so to, to sort of have the historian's uh, eye to think about all of the context and where those claims are located is something that I think is very valuable in the present and connects uh, the difficulty of accessing um, such narratives in the past um, and gives us a sort of um, a, a needed rigor in making those connections. Right, right. I, I think sort of the, the lessons that we need to, to sort of think about now can sort of inform our historical practice as well. Um, right. Sort of the questions that refugee children are raising um, give us new questions to sort of bring back to the archive as well. So it's sort of yes, like a that's reciprocal right. conversation. Yeah. And speaking of reciprocal conversations, it is time to bring ours to an end. It's been so much fun. I want to thank Sarah Winter. Mickey Macquier and Karen Sanchez Zeppler. Thank you so much for joining me. This podcast was made possible with support from C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists, and you can check out their website at www.c19society.org. Today's episode was produced by Ali Oshinsky. Special thanks to WHUS Studios at the University of Connecticut. I'm Anna Mae Duane. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online shcy.org.